Well, good morning, Christ community. Uh, as Andrew said, I'm Jordan Green. Uh, I have a little picture of my family here. It's my wife and our, our one-year-old daughter, uh, Avery, <laughs> not Sarah Beth Olson. Uh, but we are, I show this picture because we're excited to get to know you uh, and to get to know this community and to minister together as a body. As Andrew said, I'm the new associate pastor uh, participating in the residency program here at Leewood Campus. It's a really long business card. And, and if I look nervous up here, it's because I am. Uh, but I'm also really excited to get to share the word with you this morning. And as we approach this text, I want to start by telling you a story of one of my terrible horrible, no good, very bad days. Being from the middle of nowhere, Kansas, as my wife calls it, high school summers meant working for the local farmer. In fact, this was the same farmer that my dad worked for when he was younger. This meant that my summers were occupied by painting fence, shoveling horse stalls, fixing fence, and driving tractors. And this particular day, we were moving large hay bales from the field into the barn. Fairly simple, monotonous work. Two of us would drive our tractors out, pick up these half-ton bales, and bring them to the barn where my boss was busy stacking them. Well, to keep it interesting, my coworker and I would race. And the key to speed in a tractor is learning how to pick up the bale without actually stopping the tractor. <laughs> Thus, you'd be driving along, making sure the front spikes were extremely low to the ground and parallel, so that when you rammed into this thousand-pound bale, you could throw back the joystick, lift it high in the air before you rolled over it. The problem with my tractor, however, was that the joystick sometimes got stuck. So as I'm driving across the field on my way, I just nudge the stick forward, hoping to lower it a little bit, getting ready to approach the bale. But instead of just going down a little, it gets stuck and the front arm continues to drop. I notice this about the time the spikes dig into the earth and the front of the tractor reaches towards the sky. <laughs> and coming back down to earth, it's clear the arm is broke and I'm in trouble. <laughs> and this isn't just an accident, it's a mistake because of my foolishness. But of course the work day isn't over and neither are my woes. Instead my new job is to drive the small semi loaded with hay back and forth from the field. But you see, the garage was technically part of the fence gate. And, and how was I to know that when the hay is stacked so high that, and I drove through, I would accidentally rip off the building's eave? <laughs> the shingles, the guttering, the fascia board, all of it. And perhaps you felt that sickening feeling of the blood draining from your body <laughs> after a major screw-up, or several in my case. I had no words. And of course, I promised to pay everything back, even though that meant more than my summer's pay. But the, my boss, the country man that he is, he said, don't worry, you screwed up, we have bad days, I'll take care of it. So as we approach this text and we talk about forgiveness, I want to start here. Because forgiveness costs something. My boss didn't have to bear the burden of my mistake, but he did. Yet we don't always see these costs in tangible ways, but they're there. For you, this may be the case, or it may be something much worse, such as abuse, betrayal, or infidelity. The cost in these instances can be intense physical pain and emotional abuse, but there's still a cost. Because the truth is, people mess up. 
people sin. And of course, most of us would agree with this statement. Most would even admit that we ourselves are screw-ups. Obviously, I just did. The problem is that we seem to think, or at least hope, that our sin doesn't affect anyone else. And, and also, we think that we shouldn't allow ourselves to be affected by other sins, even when they clearly wrong us. Each person's an island, right? The truth is that everyone will be wronged by someone, and no doubt you will wrong someone else. This sin against our brother is as old as Cain and Abel. But what are we to do when we're wronged? And, and why should we do that? Now, likely you can see where this is going. We're talking about forgiveness. But the path to forgiveness starts in a hard place. And this is exactly where Jesus engages us in the text. We've been following Jesus along in Matthew for some time now. And in chapter 18, Jesus is again teaching us what the kingdom looks like. We've been surprised and confronted along the way. Last week, we talked about how the good life is found in children, greatness in the smallest, goodness in humility. And this description continues this week as we find the good life in forgiveness. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew 18, 15, Jesus begins with the instruction. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now it's pretty clear from this text that if we're going to follow Jesus's forgiveness, it starts by confronting sin. Because true forgiveness confronts sin. But confrontation? Are you sure? Naming sin? Uh, and while this type of responsible confrontation may come easy to some of us, it's not common for most. Within a work environment, what happens when one coworker sins against another? Maybe by taking credit for their work or slacking off so much that you have to pull their weight. What do we do? Often, we try to avoid conflict. And we usually do it in one of three ways. First, we might just dismiss the evil, thinking, oh, it's not that bad, I'll get over it. All too often, this can be disguised as the Christian thing to do. But what we're really doing is just allowing sin a foothold in our lives and relationships. And when we ignore evil, we minimize and devalue the very real pain that it causes. When we don't confront sin, forgiveness can't happen. And since ignoring evil just allows it to grow, we become nothing less than an accomplice in that very sin. Another way that we might avoid conflict, since we can't quite muster up the courage to go directly to the person who wronged us, we'd rather go to others. Perhaps this looks like gossiping to your coworkers or within your marriage. Maybe it means talking bad about your spouse with your friends. But what does this accomplish? You, you might feel good shaming the one who wronged you, but you're really just seeking vengeance. It doesn't help your relationship, but only grows the negative emotions you already have. But maybe you don't just go to your coworkers. You might also jump the hierarchical line, so to speak, and go straight to their boss. Instead of taking ownership and working things out, you look, to, you look to get them, that they will get what's coming to them. So your need for vengeance can be satisfied in this way. And, and in the last example, we might not even admit our hurt to others, but instead take a, a passive-aggressive stance against the other person. Unfortunately, 
this can be the defining characteristic of many marriages. You think, well, that's how they want to act? I'll show them what it feels like. I know I've been guilty of this in my own life. You feel hurt, but instead of attempting to repair the relationship, you just want the other person to feel your pain. But where does this cycle end? We find that none of these options work, and they rarely lead to restored relationships. On on top of perpetuating division, it causes a hardness within our own heart. And Jesus tells his disciples and us today that true forgiveness confronts sin. And it starts by going to the one who wronged you and revealing the issue that's causing friction in your life. This starts as a private confrontation, not seeking vengeance, but the hope to restore the relationship. The goal is peace, peace within our soul, peace within the relationship, and peace within our community. And we find that this is how these verses progress to address sin. Of course, going individually may not always work, even though it's where we should start. But the rest of this passage continues to show that you're not alone in confronting sin. Rather, we, the body, are in it together. The hope of forgiveness is reconciliation, and it starts within the church community as we also embody it throughout our lives. Now, there are definitely situations where it may not be healthy for the offended to confront the offender alone, and where we need to even question whether certain relationships are healthy for either person, such as an abusive marriage or sexual assault. And situations like these remind us that biblical wisdom must and needs to be expressed in each individual case. Yes, forgiveness, but also physical well-being, providing care and safety for children and the vulnerable. Boundaries can be and are healthy, and often can even aid in the forgiveness process. Yet, the need to identify wrongs and name them is still essential for forgiveness to take root. Now, while some may shy away from confrontation, the opposite end of the spectrum, we all know people who love confrontation a little too much. And they might be thinking at this point, all right, thank you, we got the new guy in here, he's telling me that I can go and I can let people have it. I can confront them with the sin that I see. And the rest of us are thinking, I don't want to be that guy because we're not supposed to judge others, right? And where is this line between confronting others and judging them? Now, if we can remember back to chapter 7, Jesus warns us about how we judge others. And this is the point we'll see really clearly in the following parable. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor who was martyred for his resistance to Nazism, provides some helpful insights into this verse and our question. He claims that there are at least two kinds of judging. One that seeks division and the poor will of the other. And one that seeks reconciliation and the other's goodwill. The first follows revenge. The second follows forgiveness. And we find that this is exactly the hope that Jesus proclaims in Matthew 18, 15. If he listens to you, your brother that is, you've gained a brother. You see, the right kind of confrontation has a heart of forgiveness and seeks reconciliation instead of division. But, but aren't people more complicated than this? more complicated than listening to you or not listening. What seems to happen is they listen and screw up, listen and screw up, listen and screw up, which begs the question, how long do I forgive? 
And this is Peter's question too. We can always count on Peter. He asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I find this so interesting and so thankful that Peter said it. It's like he heard Jesus' previous teaching and thought, that sounds great, Jesus, but I think you might have missed something. People don't work that way. They mess up a lot and sometimes really bad. What about that? Should I forgive him up to seven times? Now, Peter could have been acting a little sarcastic, as though seven was unreasonable. Or he could have been giving his own advice. The common teaching was that a brother can be forgiven three times, and on the fourth, the hammer's dropped. So this question and offer of seven either points to absurdity, or it's an attempt to go above and beyond. But either way, Jesus is so clever, and he surprises everyone's thinking when he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And if we've been reading along in Matthew and following Jesus' words, we might notice his use of hyperbole. This means that 77 is not some upper limit, as though we'll carry around a little notebook, counting each person's sin, just waiting for that final time when vengeance is ours. Rather, Jesus is saying that according to the kingdom, to this good life that he's called us to, forgiveness is limitless. And Jesus uses this 77 language to reveal the depth of this kind of forgiveness. In using this phrase, he's alluding to a very old story of Lamech in Genesis 4. Lamech is a bad dude. He represents the epitome of evil. His forefather was Cain. And when Lamech talked about himself, he claimed that he would murder a man for the smallest offense. And if Cain's vengeance was seven times, then his was 77. Lamech is a severe low point for humanity. Limitless revenge, murder, and hatred. He summarizes all the evil that came before and all that would follow after him. Yet Jesus comes and he claims that the only way to overthrow such radical revenge is by radical forgiveness. This type of forgiveness stands in opposition to the sin that's as old as Cain and Abel. Forgiveness, it seems, is actually the answer to overcoming evil so that even the most blatant sinners are not out of reach of God's forgiveness. Forgiveness, then, is transformative. Forgiveness confronts the sinner and seeks to make him a follower. Forgiveness is an act of bearing the cost in order to transform and gain a brother. And this kind of life is risky. It it doesn't really make sense to those outside the church, but it's the way to the good life. It can leave us open to heartbreak, but it leads ultimately to healing. And this is also hard. And standing here, I don't know all of your situations and the evil that you may have suffered. I I can't even claim to know what I would do in your situation. But this kind of forgiveness is what it means to follow the king. And you'll still, some will say, Jordan, you have no idea what I've been through. The things that keep me up at night, the fear the pain I feel as I cry myself to sleep, the loneliness, the isolation, betrayal, guilt, and just anger at the injustice of it all. And you're right, I don't know. But Jesus does. And that's the main thing that matters. The one who has suffered and died knows your heart better than anyone can, even yourself. He not only knows our situation, 
but he knows what it costs to forgive you, to forgive me. And in the following parable, Jesus wants to draw our attention to this relationship between his willingness to forgive us and our willingness to forgive others. Because you see, it starts with a king, and he decided the time was right to settle accounts with his servants. One servant in particular owed a massive debt. He owed 10,000 talents, an amount so large that if he was to give all of his earnings from every day for the rest of his life toward this debt, it would take thousands and thousands of lifetimes to pay back. And since repayment wasn't possible, the king decided to sell this man and his family. And yet, we find that even this wouldn't settle the account. Given the average price for a servant and his family, the king was still taking a huge loss, more than he was gaining. So we see that even the very life of the servant doesn't cover the debt that he owed. But this servant pleads with the king, falling on his knees in an act of worship. And surprisingly, the king is moved to pity. And and this concept of pity in this particular verse, it's more than just feeling sorry for someone. It's that visceral gut reaction, that sickening feeling you get in your gut when you turn on the news and hear about the atrocities that happen, school shootings, the abuse of a child. This sort of empathy you feel for the victims in these situations. And, And it's this type of empathy and intense pity that the king felt for the offender, the one who actually owed the debt, and yet he forgave it. He just canceled the debt. Now, the next thing our, for, our forgiven servant does is to find a fellow servant, a brother who owes him a debt. And compared to what the first was forgiven, it's small, only 100 denarii, whereas what he had owed was on the equivalent and order of 100 million denarii. And our second servant makes the exact same plea as the first. Have patience with me. I will pay you. So here we have a man who's been forgiven an unimaginable debt, and the tables are turned. He has the same opportunity as the king, but what does he do? To our shock, he not only refuses to forgive the debt, he refuses the man's request for more time. He throws him in jail where there's no chance for repayment. Now, I think we'd all agree that the servant didn't deal fairly. And the fellow servants felt the same way and reported it, what happened to their king. And the king's pity now turned to anger. The servant had been shown mercy and was expected to follow it and give mercy to others. And we find in this the gospel, the good news. You and I have been forgiven such a large debt that we could never repay We've offended God in so many ways, from mishandling his resources to disobeying his commands and created order. And I know I find this hard to conceptualize, and and often the weight I don't feel. It's, It's easy to consider ourselves good people and think the sins we've committed are minuscule compared to what we might have suffered. But this parable is teaching us that if we minimize the depth of God's forgiveness, then we find ourselves incapable of forgiving others and at the same time, in danger of hell. But the very price for our lives, for my life, was nothing less than the very Son of God who died on the cross. And we've been forgiven in order to replicate this good news in our lives. It's it's not as though forgiving, you earn your own forgiveness. 
But whether we forgive or not reveals whether or not we've been forgiven. I love how Dallas Willard encapsulates this when he says, it's not psychologically possible for us to really know God's pity for us and at the same time be hard-hearted toward others. In this way, the parable is showing us that forgiveness reveals the forgiven. The way we interact with those who have wronged us shows whether or not we're forgiven because forgiveness reveals the forgiven. But for the servant who didn't forgive, with the same judgment he gave, it was judged to him. This time, the king didn't sell him, but delivered him to the jailers, and not just any jailers, but actually delivered him over to those who inflict punishment. And we're advised that this is the way the kingdom works. Because to refuse to forgive another is to refuse God's forgiveness in our own lives. Now, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's an acceptance of God's forgiveness and a promise to replicate it in our own lives. I love this. In Jesus' prayer, he speaks about the intersection of heaven and earth and requests, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he follows this prayer with the explanation and the exhortation. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, but if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We hear Jesus say to forgive without limit, and it's hard. I mean, think about some of the things people do to each other. Think of the things that have been done to you. But Jesus doesn't qualify this statement at all. He doesn't give us an out. Forgive, unless someone really hurts you. Forgive, but not murder. Forgive, but not abuse. The way this reads, nothing is unforgivable, except not forgiving. And why? The answer, at least in this parable, is that you and I need unlimited forgiveness. That is what God has done for you. And a sign that you've accepted this is when you can give it as well. Because in the kingdom, in this good life, forgiven people forgive. And this is a difficult statement. And I find myself asking, so what are you saying? Does this mean that if I can't forgive some heinous act, then I'm not saved? Is this what Jesus is saying? In talking with a friend about this, he reminded me and described forgiveness like going to the gym, though few do. No one goes in and simply starts bench pressing 300 pounds. It's too great a burden at first. You begin with small amounts to lift as you close the gap to that larger amount. And, and it's like that with forgiveness. We need to be asking ourselves, what are the small ways that we can extend forgiveness? And this can be a sobering exercise, but who might be the person that comes to mind as you listen to this call to forgive? The one sitting next to you? A child? A parent? Or maybe a friend or coworker? We can start small, but we have to start. The point is not exactly how much you can forgive, because you can never forgive as much as you've been forgiven. Rather, the real question is whether or not you're following Christ's forgiveness and pursuing it in your own relationships, both great and small. And this is a gift that we receive and impart to others. It's not something that we take away. It's not a jewel that we hoard within ourselves 
as though forgiveness is something only God does but has no place in our lives. We need to follow the forgiveness we've received and pursue forgiving others. But, but how, how can I forgive? And how do I know if I have forgiven? Forgiveness isn't always an immediate thing, and often it takes time. While the picture of forgiveness is found in the parable we just read, and in the way that God has forgiven us, it mainly involves two domains. Forgiveness involves a decision. As in the parable, forgiveness is a decision not to seek the debt owed, not to seek retribution outwardly or passively. Even more than not seeking these things, forgiveness hopes for the goodwill of the debtor, the one who wronged you. It's a decision to confront and name sin, but to not look for repayment. The second aspect is often much harder, and that's the emotion. When someone wrongs you, there's a real emotional response. While you may make a decision not to take revenge, pain and grief are still there. They linger. We feel angry and sad, just want to tear our hair out and scream. To this, the solution may be time, but we also need to remember how much we have been forgiven by God and by others in our lives. To hold on to these emotions of unforgiveness only brings about our own destruction. Hate, bitterness, rage, self-hate, and revenge, these emotions and desires of unforgiveness, they're antithetical to the good life Jesus calls you to now and evermore. They destroy your mental health, they isolate you from the community, and they cause you to despise the sacred. They devour you, becoming a true hell on earth. And according to Jesus, it doesn't stop with this life. Because if you can't forgive others, then there's no room for your own, much larger forgiveness. Rather, you just end up with a very real hell of your own making, both in this life and the next. While those who don't forgive find themselves incapable of receiving forgiveness, forgiven people forgive. And this is the way the community of the kingdom operates. And it's the good life we are called to follow. And can you just imagine, if people followed this kind of forgiveness throughout all the facets of their life, can you imagine what kind of world this would create? It would be as if the kingdom of heaven had come to earth. It would transform our marriages, our jobs, and our communities. Those who have been forgiven much recognize the need to forgive others. They follow Jesus' call to forgive, not only to receive their own forgiveness, but to give it. Because forgiven people forgive. Will you pray with me? Father, as we listen to this message of forgiveness, we say with the psalmist, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This blessing is great, because the debt we owe is unpayable. And my prayer today is that for those who don't know this great blessing, that they may come to know you and the great love you have for us. And for those who do know this blessing, that it doesn't stop with us. That we may look to forgive as we follow your very forgiveness. And in this way, I pray that your kingdom is glimpsed as we forgive one another. Amen.